and welcome to Wilderness Wanderings. I'm your host, David Nolan, and for the next few minutes, we're going to continue our study on 1 Kings 19 as we look at the discouragement of Elijah and what God reminded him of during that time. Today, we're going to be discussing the reminder of God's provision. But before we do, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. First, the American Bible Society exists to give people access to the life-changing message of God's Word by distributing copies of the Bible around the world in over 200 countries and territories. And Christian Strong Apparel for men, women, and children. You can also order custom apparel and bags and other gear for your organization. For more information about these sponsors and to support this broadcast, check out our website at wildernesswanderings.org. So over the last few weeks, you've heard me talk about the wilderness of sin. So what is it? Well, the wilderness of sin is a barren wasteland of approximately 23,750 square miles of mountainous terrain that is nearly devoid of life or subsistence in the Sinai Peninsula. In the Old Testament, this is the wilderness that the Israelites spent 40 years wandering through after they doubted God's provision of the promised land for them once they escaped slavery in Egypt. It is also the traditional home of Mount Sinai on the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, a name that is rooted in the name of the same desert. There is some debate over whether this is the actual mountain where God delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses, while some believe the actual location is closer to modern northern Saudi Arabia, or southern Jordan, possibly separated from the Sinai Peninsula over the years by shifting tectonic plates that formed what is now the Gulf of Aqaba. But I digress. The wilderness of sin represents a couple of things. First, it represents the wasteland that separates the promised land from the slavery of Egypt. Israel spent nearly 400 years in slavery in Egypt, separated from the land promised to them by God through Abraham. They went to Egypt originally due to the promise of safety and security during a famine in the area of Israel where Joseph offered them shelter. But later, after Joseph died and time passed, a new ruler came to power who didn't know of Joseph and he enslaved the Israelite refugees, preventing them from returning to their homeland. As a result, it represents all that separated Israel from the presence and promise of God. Secondly, it represents the barrenness of separation from God's promise and presence when we allow our lives to be characterized by slavery to sin that comes when we doubt the promise of God's provision, quote, in the land of milk and honey. And you can read all about that in Numbers chapter 14, but this is summarized in Psalm 78 when the psalmist writes, quote, they forgot his works and the wonders that he showed them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the land of Zoan. Now, as we fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 19, we are hundreds of years into the future. Israel has been reestablished as a kingdom. It has now been divided by wars into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel is ruled by King Ahab, who has instituted a pagan fertility cult as the state religion at the behest of his wife Jezebel. 
the prophet Elijah burst onto the scene from the nowhere town of Tishbe and boldly declares a three-and-a-half-year drought, a prophetic omen that strikes at the very heart of the fertility cult leading to famine in the land. And then God hides Elijah out at a small stream called Cherith, a small tributary on the east side of the Jordan River and a short distance north of his hometown. It was here that Elijah was miraculously fed meat by ravens, birds that were actually considered ritually unclean. However, if you look closely at the words of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 4, you will see something really amazing about the promise of God's provision to Elijah. He says, I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Look at it again and read it slowly. He had already commanded the ravens to provide for Elijah before the provision was even needed. The provision had already been prepared beforehand. But Elijah still had to get up, go, and eat, or else the provision would go to waste. And over the next three and a half years, God continued to provide for Elijah in the midst of the drought. Now, because of the drought, after a while, the small stream dried up, which means it was time for Elijah to get up and get to work. So he goes north to the town of Zarephath in Phoenicia, and he stays with a widow and her son. There, God miraculously allows a handful of flour and oil to last until the end of the drought period. At one point, the son became ill, and God used Elijah to perform the first resurrection miracle recorded in Scripture. Interestingly, it was this act of raising up her son that led her, the widow, to finally declare that he was, quote, a man of God, and that the word of the Lord was in his mouth as truth. So at this point, God has provided subsistence in the form of meat provided by unclean animals, bread from a foreign widow, and life to a dead son. He then returns to Israel after three and a half years, as promised, leads the false prophets to Mount Carmel, and defeats them there as God provided fire to consume a saturated altar and then rain to end the drought. Now, because of his fear and sudden doubt that God would rescue him from this raging queen, he runs and hides in the wilderness of sin. And in 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 4 until we get to verse 8, we read, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, 
the mountain of God. Now, it didn't take long for God to start working to get Elijah's attention. Elijah stopped only a day after leaving his servant in Beersheba to rest. And hear the despondency and the self-pity in Elijah's voice. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. But God sent an angel who woke him and gave him food, fresh bread and water. The bread, based on the description, is likely similar to what we know today as naan, a flatbread baked on hot stones, common fare in the Middle East region. So he gets up and eats a little and drinks the water, but he rolls over and goes back to sleep. But the the encounter isn't finished. The angel kicks him in the side and wakes him back up, tells him to get up and eat, for the journey is too great for you. So he ate the remainder of the food, and that provided him with enough sustenance to survive for forty days and nights as he traveled on to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. Now don't miss this. We are all on a journey in this life. As with every journey, there is a destination. The question is really, where are you headed in this life and beyond? If you are living life on the highway to hell, then I'm here to tell you, God isn't going to help you get there. You're doing that all on your own as a result of your own choices and the sin that we are all guilty of. But if your destination is the mountain of God, even in the midst of your discouragement and fear, God will provide for you. Just as God provided meat for Elijah at the brook Cherith, bread in the widow's home, and life in the widow's son, he will provide bread in the wilderness of your doubt. Just as he provided fire for the altar and rain for the parched dry land, he will provide fire in your heart and water for your soul in the form of the Holy Spirit to remind you of this simple fact. The journey is too great for you to make it alone and on your own strength. Doubt can be a wilderness all of its own. When God promised to provide our every need, if we just trust him and take him at his word, the single most effective tool that the adversary will use is doubt. It only takes a single grain of doubt to bring a landslide of calamity into your life. It's a virtual domino effect. Doubt can suck the life and joy out of you like a great spiritual vacuum, leaving you feeling empty and hopeless. Once your life becomes ruled by doubt rather than faith, all of your decisions in life begin to be made based on fear. An old friend once told me that, quote, Fear is nothing more than perverted faith. When you live in fear... You are putting your faith in the father of lies rather than the author of truth. And there's so much truth to that. I used to live my own life based on fear, taking the least risky path, making the safe choices. Sure, life was okay, but I was skirting by, and there was just no joy. It's a very lonely existence when you aren't willing to risk trust in friendship, Marriages go sour because spouses are afraid to share the depths of their heart 
and no true intimacy is built on honest communication. All that is left is the endless fear that will all come crashing down if the wrong choice is made. The lack of a decision is a decision by default to go with the status quo that we already know is not fulfilling or satisfactory. Now, I want to make something very clear. One of the major criticisms of the modern church and televangelists that I see is the heretical prosperity gospel that is coming out of the pulpit. This health and wealth teaching is so far removed from the truth of Scripture, it is in fact straight from the mouth of hell. The best marker I can give you that will heighten your discernment of the message coming from the pulpit is this. If the sermon message doesn't point you to Jesus and focus on the advancement of his kingdom, then the message is lost. If the message promotes your self-interest, i.e. self-focused prophecies, or the interest of the pastor in order to give in order to receive, run, don't walk, run out of that congregation because you're being fed a pack of lies. If the ministry of the Holy Spirit is treated like witchcraft in such a way that ministers are attempting to teach the manipulation of God to bend to our will rather than submission to His will, run. If the sermon couches prophecy through a lens of nationalism and local patriotism, run. Just as God has provided for you over and over again in your life. When you lived your life in obedience to his call, he will continue to provide you with the power to advance his kingdom even in the midst of your discouragement. The most important thing that we need to remember is this. His provision is for our good, but his provision is for his purposes. When you are submitted to his purposes, his provision will always be exactly what you need to get you through. What is this provision? Is it financial or material? Sometimes, yes, it is. Is it merely spiritual or emotional? Well, sometimes, yes, that is the case. But in each case, we are given the responsibility to steward whatever resources God provides for his kingdom purposes, not our own comfort. If that were so, then how do you explain the martyrdom of the apostles, who were all first-hand witnesses of the truth of Jesus' resurrection? How do you explain the martyrdom of the multitudes of saints over the 2,000 years since then? However, Rest assured that if your heart is broken for the same things that break the heart of God, then you will hunger and thirst for His righteousness and the advancement of His kingdom in your world. As Jesus promised in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Most importantly, God's provision of guidance and comfort from the Holy Spirit is his ultimate provision. 
In our broken humanity, it is easy to get our eyes focused on the material world around us and question how can God provide for me in the midst of all of this? How can God provide for me when I need to sustain my family and I have no job? If God is calling me to the mission field, how will he provide me with the resources to obey his calling? How do I draw my wayward child back into an obedient relationship with the Lord? The truth in your situation, I don't have any clear-cut answers beyond this. First, you must continue to trust God and take him at his word. That means you need to be in his word daily, studying and pouring his word into your life. Saturate your life with his commandments and his statutes. Consume the words of encouragement and hope that he has for you, and it will give you sustenance to get through the day. Secondly, and I can't stress this enough, pray. Prayer is not us giving God our daily list of demands. It's giving God our attention, our worship, and our adoration. Yes, the scripture says to make your request known to him, but he already knows what we need before we even ask. But primarily, prayer is that quiet time of getting on our face before our creator and acknowledging his sovereignty, his power, his grace, and his provision. Please, let me reiterate if there is only one thing I hope you take from this message today, it's this. God's provision is for our good, but his provision is for his kingdom purposes. Thank you once again for joining us on this edition of Wilderness Wonderings. Next week, we'll explore the reminder of God's perseverance. If you're in need of prayer, please write to us at prayer at wildernesswanderings.org. Check out my blog at wildernesswanderings.org. Every Tuesday through Friday, we release a new morning devotional designed to encourage you in your walk that day. Opening and closing music have been provided by Kevin McLeod. Have a great week and join us next time as we continue to wander deeper into the riches and wonder of God's grace.